reading for this morning is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. When you arrive to that, please stay and look. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the 
answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Father in heaven, we pray that the words that we receive this moment resonates in our hearts and our minds and we will grasp the understanding that you pray to raise to us. Open our eyes, Father. Open our ears, and especially our hearts, that we will understand and take it for what it is and be a good representation of Christ our Lord and Savior. In the name of Christ, we Oh. 
Yep, we're good. Our text this morning is Luke 10, verses 25 and following. I was a bit late today. I got was low on gas, so I stopped at the gas station to get gas. All of Lapeer was sitting at the gas station waiting in line for gas. So I was way out, partly out in the street, and so take my turn. Luke 10. Well, last Lord's Day, we studied the parable of the stewards. Uh, what a steward is. A businessman of considerable wealth distributed his, young, his property among the three servants and then he left to go on a long journey. First two servants invested the money and Dowd doubled it. The third servant buried his allotment in the ground. When the master returned to settle accounts, the first two servants received his commendation. Well done and good, good and faithful servant. Ah, but the third servant was judged to be both wicked and lazy. God's words, not mine. Why? Well, wicked, because he tried to make the master bear some of the blame, accusing him of being, well, you're a hard man, and you reap where you haven't sown anything. And secondly, he was lazy because the least he could have done was to deposit his master's money in the bank, so that it would have earned some interest, but he wouldn't even do that. Instead, he buried it. Meaning of the story. We learn that God is the owner of the universe, and he has given the management of his kingdom into the hands of his people. To accomplish this, God has equipped every member of the body of Christ with a gift of the Holy Spirit, a talent, skill, an ability, which when employed on behalf of the church, will benefit the body of Christ. The wicked steward didn't see his part in the plan of God. We learn, secondly, that we are stewards of the gifts of God. And if we do manage our gifts for God's glory, we will be counted both faithful and uh, wise. Faithfulness and stewardship is even more paramount in the days in which we are living now. Why? Because people's hearts are against God in our day and age. And the scripture says when, God, when Christ returns, will he find faith on the earth? I don't know. Will he find it? Not if we're being faithless. Well, today we're moving our study on the gospel that Jesus preached to the account that we find in Luke's gospel. Now, Luke, among the gospel writers, he's a detailed person. And one would expect that because he was a physician. He was Paul's personal doctor that traveled with Paul. Paul had a lot of sickness issues and Luke got his gospel understanding from Paul so he's very detailed in what he has to say 
He includes some parables which none of the other gospel authors record. One such account is the very famous parable of the Good Samaritan, which I have titled for today's study, The Good Neighbor. So as we come to our study, Luke chapter 10, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Lord, we do count it a privilege to have a Bible even, to be uh, able to possess. There were days in the history of mankind when there were Bible burnings. Why? Because people hated you so much they wanted to express it. And so to get rid of your word because they didn't want to be convicted by it, they had book burnings, big bonfires in the town squares. But your word cannot be burned into extinction. You have promised that. There will always be the Bible-believing people, and they'll have their Bibles or sections of Scripture which they have preserved for their spiritual strength and enlightenment. Well, we're thankful for our country and the fact that we have freedom of religion here and we can have our Bibles. In fact, most of us have multiple Bibles, and the privilege of coming and gathering in God's church with one another, people of like mind and heart, wanting to learn more and more about our Savior. Bless our time together, and we'll praise you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 10, 25 and following, is our text. And what I want to deal with, first of all, is the prologue to the parable. We're specifically told by Luke that the story of the good neighbor, which Jesus told, was the outgrowth of an attempted entrapment. We're told an expert in Jewish law, oh boy, look out for the experts, an expert in Jewish law, we are told, stood up to test Jesus. Oh, the arrogance of men, uh, I tell you. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The word test here in Greek, strong word, it means to put to the test to tempt, to trap. Strong word. It's not exactly an honorable word when it comes to motive. It shows that this expert in the law had an ulterior motive in his question. His inquiry was not for information on how to inherit eternal life, but for the purpose of embarrassing Jesus and discrediting him before the public's eye. This happened on numerous occasions with our Lord. In the famous wilderness temptation of Jesus, with the devil himself as the personal tempter, he suggested that Jesus jump off the pinnacle of the temple, because after all, God had charged the angels to protect the Christ from personal injury. Sounds very plausible. But Jesus saw through Satan's ploy. And he responded, it is written. 
Do not put the Lord your God to the test. What was he saying? Well, he was saying this. It's one thing to accidentally fall from a lofty height and to need the protection of God, the rescue of God. It's quite another thing to deliberately jump off a high point and create a dangerous situation which calls on God for the rescue. Matthew 19, verse 3, using a different Greek word, meaning to put to the proof, both with good or bad intentions, depending on the context. But that text reads, Matthew 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. You suppose their intent was good or bad? (laughs) Being Pharisees. Probably bad. Here's their question. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 11, puts it this way. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus and to test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. Boy. One such testing of Jesus is very parallel to our own text in content. Matthew 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, here's these experts again. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, um... Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now it's clear from the context of these questions that none of these men, none of these questions were asked for information's sake. None of them. These Sadducees, these Pharisees, could not have cared less about the information their questions posed. Their questions were a form of entrapment to catch Jesus, if they could, in a moral dilemma from which he could not extrapolate himself. They wanted to discredit his teaching with the people and at the same time To justify themselves. My. Look at verse 29. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus. Who's my neighbor? Don't you just love it when people pick at your words and you know they haven't heard you. They're just out to look good and make you look bad. So putting it bluntly, this whole inquiry was a setup. It was a setup. 
Don't think that you are the only one who has ever been asked a leading or a misleading question. Our Lord was constantly being placed in predicaments by his enemies. So what do you do when you suspect that somebody is just asking you a question to be contentious, to put you on the spot, to catch you in a trap so that you hang yourself by your own words? Well, you do what Jesus did. What did he do? Well, number one, he didn't answer the question directly, but instead asked another question of the questioner. Jesus asked, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Verse 26. So Jesus, in doing this, he took charge of the conversation. No longer was he on the spot, the law expert was now beholden to rehearse some of that expert knowledge he purported to have from the law of God. Jesus did the same thing when his authority was being questioned by the chief priests and scribes. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered, I will also ask you one question. And if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Here's Jesus' question. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? Matthew 21, verse 24 and following. Now this is not an evasive ploy by Christ a way to turn the tables on his enemies. God doesn't use trickery to accomplish his will. Rather, the point of this procedure is this. Certain questions don't deserve a direct answer. We need to learn that. You don't dignify someone's clever but evil motives by falling for their tricks. Jesus didn't do that. I would also like to suggest that Jesus' real intent here is not to make this expert of the law look like a fool, though he was foolish, but to point him to true salvation by exposing his evil motives for his question and pointing him to true repentance. Whenever our enemies try to entrap us, we should endeavor to do as Jesus did. Remember, they are enemies of Christ before they are enemies of Christians. But even so, I think about us all, weren't we at one time enemies of Christ? Bible says so. Living according to the principles of this world. But Jesus' question called on this expert of the law to rehearse what he already knew was found in the law of God concerning eternal life. It's interesting that this man did not 
quote from any particular one or two or even all of the Ten Commandments in the Decalogue. He didn't quote any of that. Rather, he gave the two summations of the law, which are found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Command on loving God with all of one's soul, heart, and so forth. And Leviticus 19, verse 18, on loving one's neighbor. Look at verse 27 of our text. He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And, point two, love your neighbor as yourself. This man knew his Bible. And he was using this his knowledge of the Bible to try to put Jesus on the spot. On another occasion when Jesus was asked, Matthew 22, verse 36, which is the greatest commandment in the law, he gave the same identical answer that this expert of the law gave. So this man in our text was an expert in the law. He knew his Bible. He gave the same answer that the Son of God gave for the same question. No wonder, no wonder that Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Verse 28. You see, the man knew the answer to his question before he asked it. Knowledge of the law was not his problem. Implementation of the word of God. That was his problem. There are people who know more than they do. You know more than you do. I know more than I do. So often it isn't our ignorance that condemns us. It's our indolence. Jesus' answer, do this and you will live, address the problem of implementation. This expert of the law knew what he needed to do to inherit eternal life, but he would not do it. Worse, he did the very opposite of what he knew to do. So Jesus' answer did two things. Number one, firstly... It addressed the problem of refusing to put into practice what one knows. Whole part of our society. Secondly, it exposed the utter inability of this man to ever do what he knew the law of God required. Is it true, as Jesus postulated, that eternal life will be given to the person who obeys these two principles? Of God's word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, strength, and mind. And number two, love your neighbor as you already love yourself. 
Is that true, that God promises salvation? Through those two commands? We who live in the New Testament age of grace might be tempted to say, well, um, um, no, no, no. God never promised salvation on the basis of human obedience to his law. But to say that would be to make Christ a liar in this text who is promising this very thing and it would be to deny what is specifically taught elsewhere in the word of God. God said to Cain, Cain and Abel, remember, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Genesis 4 verse 7. Do what's right. Deuteronomy 6 verse 25. Moses tells the people, if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Leviticus 18 verse 5 makes this promise. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. That is gain life by his obedience. I am the Lord, he says. Then three times in the book of Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11, verse 13, verse 21, all from Ezekiel 20, God says of Israel that they did not follow his commands, although the man who obeys them will live by them. In Nehemiah 9, verse 29, we read, They, speaking of Israel, sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Now that's a great preponderance of evidence that cannot be lightly dismissed. The life referred to in these texts cannot mean simply living in this world. Because pagans certainly enjoy physical life in this world, without one shred of obedience to God's word. What is more, Jesus, in our text, is answering a man who asked him a question concerning inheriting, verse 25, eternal life. So that's the subject under discussion. And his answer is this, do this, do what the law says you should do, with regard to God and your neighbor, and you will live. Now follow me closely here. We do not establish the doctrine of eternal life by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ by denying that there was a promise of life from God based upon obedience to his word. The New Testament authors admit, Galatians 3 verse 12, that God promised eternal life to those who obey his word. Paul in Romans 7 admits, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, good, verse 12. But the apostle goes on to tell us his own experience, which, as history demonstrates, is the experience of every human being when it comes to obedience to God's law. Let me read it for you. 
When the commandment came, says Paul, and he's refer it's singular because he's talking about a specific commandment that convicted him, and that was number 10 of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. So Paul says, oh boy, I was feeling pretty good about myself, feeling pretty great, obeying the law as a Pharisee, but when the commandment came, when number 10 came, here's what he says. Sin sprang to life, and I died. I died. I found that the very commandment was that, that was intended to bring life, you know, if you obey it, yeah, actually brought death. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, through that commandment, put me to death. Okay, what is he saying? He's saying something like this. God intended to extend life to me and to anyone else who could keep his commandments. But what actually occurred was this. When the law said, thou shalt not covet, it condemned me. Why? Because I knew that I had already coveted many, many times. So, instead of life coming to me through obedience, death actually came to me through the commandment because of my disobedience. Oh. So in Paul's case, and probably in all of our case, the law was his wake-up call. It convicted his conscience. As he went through the Ten Commandments, Thou have no other gods before me. Thou shalt love God with all your heart, soul, and so forth. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. He's checking it off. Good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. He gets down to number ten. Thou shalt not covet. Ooh, not so good. Being honest about his spiritual state. He says, sin revived. And I died. You got me, God. Took ten thou shalt nots. But you got me. Because I covet everything. I want to be the best Pharisee. I want to be the most famous preacher. I want. I want. And Paul is confessing his inability to keep the law of God. Let me read it for you. He says, I know that the law is spiritual, but I am 
unspiritual. Soul is a slave to sin. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, that would be to obey God's commandments, right? I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I can't do it. Romans 7 verse 18. And brethren, here is the answer as to why salvation in the end is solely of God's grace and God's mercy. God will give you eternal life if you keep all of his commandments perfectly. That is a promise in scripture. But Paul couldn't do that. Boy, that's a that's a big if. If you do 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 do, you'll have life eternal. Paul said, "I can't do that." And by the way, you can't do it either, and neither can I. And so, for all intent and purposes, eternal life through obedience is a moot point. It's a moot point because it's a genuine promise to all who obey, but there isn't a person on earth that has the ability to obey. So we're all doomed. Now you might ask, well, <laughs> wait a minute. What good is a promise whose condition of obedience no one can keep? Or to say it another way, why promise life for obedience if none can obey? Well, there's a twofold answer. Number one, there was one, one, only one, who earned eternal life through his obedience, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He kept the stipulation of the promise and thus obtain life for himself and for all who will trust in him. If there's no eternal life for obedience, then Christ, the God-man, is in jeopardy of the representation of humanity. It is his sinless life his utter and complete love for God and his neighbor that qualifies him as a man of perfect obedience. His death on the cross, let us remember, was for no personal disobedience to God's law. He was being, bearing, excuse me, he was bearing the iniquity of his people that God laid on him. He was dying for his people's disobedience not anything in himself and his sacrifice of himself has merit because of his own obedient life but secondly the promise of life to those who obey has this secondary work namely to convict men that they are sinners and are in need of God's mercy if they ever hope to inherit eternal life. 
God's law has this effect. It tells us what to do to live. But when we see that our own lives fall way short of that obedience, the broken law condemns us and points us to our lostness. This is a true promise from God. But if you can't do it, guess what? You're lost. And that is precisely the effect Jesus' word had on this expert of the law in our text. As soon as Jesus told him, do this and you will live. He knew that he had not done, nor could he ever love God with all of his heart, soul, and mind, and love his neighbor with that wholehearted devotion which the law of God required of him. And that's why he attempted to justify himself, verse 29, by asking Jesus, well, Who's my neighbor? Sure, the law said to love my neighbor as myself, but what is meant by neighbor? Let me tell you, men do this every time. Every time the word of God becomes too convicting. we immediately reach for the aspirin bottle to kind of dull the pain. Okay, then who's my neighbor? See, it's a diversion. Well, Jesus didn't skip a beat. And that's where the parable of the good neighbor comes in. A traveler, a worshiper, was going down to Jericho. Jericho, south of, or north, excuse me, of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho is about 1,000 feet below sea level. So quite a difference there. This topography, even today, is comprised of rugged roads winding through steep ravines, which are pocked with caves and bridges. And ample hiding places for robbers. Still the same today. And sure enough, the bandit struck this man before he knew what hit him. He was robbed of his money, his clothes, and on top of that, they beat him. The Greek term is, they laid on him many blows. Which explains why he was half dead, the scripture says when they left him there along the road. I don't know if you've watched the news lately, but this, this goes on right in our own country. New York City. Man was not, it wasn't enough just to rob him. They had to beat him within an inch of his life. The thieves are not content to take people's money alone. They often take their victims' lives. Such is the brutality of wicked men. Three other travelers, a Jewish priest, a Levite. A Levite is a servant in the temple. And a Samaritan. They pass by this beaten man 
in succession and saw him lying unconscious along the road. The first two, the priest and the Levite, who were to be men who loved God with heart, soul, strength, mind, body, could not even bring themselves to love this neighbor who had fallen among thieves. They walked on the opposite side of the road and they just kept going. Didn't, you know, didn't even want to look at what was going on over there. It's like the people in Detroit who witnessed muggings and murders and rapes from their apartment windows and will not even call the police or an ambulance. These travelers refuse to get involved. Well, the third traveler was different. He belonged to the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a half-breed people consisting of half-Jews and half-Gentiles who then intermarried. In the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, John explained her amazement that Jesus, a Jew, had spoken to her with these words. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, John 4, verse 9. Well, that's putting it mildly. If you look at a map, and I was going to bring one, I forgot it. If you look at a map of biblical Palestine, you will see that the province of Samaria lies directly to the north of Judea. So you've got Judea, Samaria, Jordan River over here. Now you would think, if I wanted to get up to Galilee, which is up here, the quickest way to get to Galilee would be go right through Samaria to Galilee. Oh, no. They didn't do that because they didn't want to get into any conversations or have anything to do with Samaritans. So here's what they did. Jordan River, Samaria, Judea. They crossed the Jordan River and went up on the east side, Perea area. And then when they got up high enough to Galilee, they crossed back over the Jordan River and they therefore skipped Samaria and Samaritans altogether. Pretty clever. Pretty wicked. Pretty prejudicial. But that's what they would do. Yet it was a hated Sumerian traveler who came to the aid of this beaten, robbed Jew along the road and took pity on him, verse 33. His pity was more than just empathy, the, uh, the ability to feel for him, yeah, but true sympathy, where he entered into the hurt of the man and did those things which were necessary to help the man. What did he do? The first thing he did was to administer first aid. He dressed the man's wounds, 
using wine as the disinfectant and oil as an emollient to facilitate healing. Verse 34. This sore in my chin, the one on my nose. My doctor took a look at them and he stood there with his scalpel. He says, I think they might be cancerous. <laughs> he had those things whipped off my face before I could say, ah, ah, blah, blah, blah. And then what I had to do and what I continued to have to do, washed continually those areas and then used Vaseline as an emollient so that the wounds will not heal over with a scab. No, we don't want scabs. We want it to heal from the inside out. So anyway, some truth to that. Wine, oil. Wine, clean it up, oil, as an emollient. Secondly, he interrupted his journey, his journey, by loading this injured man onto his own donkey, taking him to an inn where he spent the night caring for this man until he passed the critical stage of his wounds. Verse 34. Thirdly, in the morning he paid the innkeeper two silver coins, two denarii, two days' wages. Remember that a denarii was a day's wages. And he charged him to take care of this man. Fourthly, he promised to return to check on the stranger and to reimburse the innkeeper for any additional expenses he might incur in caring for the man who had fallen among thieves. Jesus then asked this expert in the law, which of these three do you think was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Verse 36. To which the lawyer responded, the man who had mercy on him. Yeah. Jesus' point, go and do likewise. Whoa. What's the meaning of all this? Well, number one, the lawyer knew what he had to do to inherit eternal life. He used to love God. He used to love his neighbor. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He also knew the answer to his his question on who is my neighbor, or more accurately, who is neighborly in their conduct, verse 37, the one who had mercy on him. The guy says it. He knows. So once a person has some knowledge of the God of the Bible and the perfection of his standard, he also knows what God expects of him. Certainly the priests, certainly the Levite in the story knew what God expected of them in the charge to love their neighbors. But they wouldn't do it. Not even for a hurting fellow Jew. The sin of the lawyer is our sin as well. He's the priest. He's the Levite in the story. Not only could he not obey the commands of God, he would not obey if he could which is more grievous. This shows the willful hatred of men's hearts towards God. The priest, the Levite, had the first opportunity to show mercy. They came upon the beaten traveler 
before the Samaritan came along. But they refused compassion. You and I are not passive in our sin, brethren. Sin is in us. It's not just something that happens upon us unsuspectingly. No, sin is something we do deliberately. Like this priest, this Levite, who saw the man in need, had the resources to help him, but chose to walk on by. That was a personal choice. The Samaritan, on the other hand, like God, saw the need, had the means to help, and showed mercy. Jesus taught, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Matthew 5, verse 7. And James tells us, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And then James says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. If you're just going to stand on the law and, hey, this, is, this guy needs to be condemned. If you're going to stick with judgment, have you thought about yourself and judgment? You can read about it in Matthew 7. Will whatever standard you hold up and measure another person by, Jesus says, God's going to hold up the same standard to you, and how are you going to fare? What's going to happen to you? Simply put, mercy towards others is a sign in our life that we have been the recipients of God's mercy. Love for our fellow man, especially the body of Christ, is a sign that we know and love God. These two commandments complement each other. You cannot claim to love God while hating your neighbor. You cannot claim to love your neighbor while denying mercy, God's mercy. The sinfulness of our hearts makes it easier to deal out judgment to those who have offended us. But mercy triumphs over judgment in the lives of God's true people. So here's the test. You say you love God. You say that you have confessed your sins to him, that you've become a recipient of his mercy and forgiveness. You claim to be a child of God and delivered from the wrath of God to come. So here's the test. Is there love then in your heart for your fellow man who are beaten and bruised and half dead because of the sinful road they're traveling? People who have been robbed of the gospel's seed by Satan are lying naked without God and without hope in the world. These same people are also victimized by the religious elite of our culture who have the means to help, but pass by them instead. They're following their own wicked doctrine 
that has nothing to do with grace. The lawyer in our text knew what to do. He did. But he could not and he would not do what he knew. (laughs) You may be no better. The mark of a heart that has experienced the mercy of God. Get this now. The mark of heart that has experienced the mercy of God is mercy. The oil and wine of the Spirit's healing is within your grasp. God expects you to go and do likewise towards those of your neighbors who are dead in their sins. When President Bush envisioned a kinder and gentler nation, to use his phrase, when he projected that to be part of his presidency, the critics laughed at his idealism. Maybe you remember that. But the Christ of true Christianity envisions the same thing for his people as we live in a hostile environment. We're to do better than just know the right thing to do. We are to do it. And if there is no mercy in us towards lost and dying humanity, then we are lost ourselves and we have missed the Christ of the gospel. Even in this dialogue between the expert of the law and Jesus, we see Jesus guiding the conversation so as to lead the man to a true knowledge of God and of himself as Savior. In the Mark 12 account, we read that when Jesus saw that the lawyer had answered wisely his question, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Ooh, Mark 12 verse 34. The gospel Jesus preached was a message intended to bring sinners to repentance and into his kingdom if we are men and women of the same gospel, we will go and do likewise. I pray we will. I pray I will. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its convicting nature. We get comfortable in our religion The Pharisee, the Levite, in this account, I'm sure they thought they were holy and doing the right thing. And they passed by this guy that was wounded unto death, almost death. And how badly he had been beaten is proven by the fact that the Samaritan had to dress all of his wounds, take him into the inn, pay for his hospitalization, we might say, while he traveled on with his business. And then when his business was done, he stopped back. 
check on this guy. Real love, real concern. Lord, help us, we pray, to be of like mind. We thank you and praise you for the glory of Christ. Amen. Okay, our closing. But we do you have a hymn? Where's my lady? <laughs> Eighty nine in the brown book. All right. Now we're going to take a ten minute break and then regather for the Lord's table. <laughs>